So we're nine weeks into hearing sermons from the book of Hebrews. And I know it sounds repetitive, but perhaps some are here for the first time. And so in the way of briefly recapping what Hebrews is and where it's taking us, Hebrews is a sermon letter written to a Christian community where some, due to persecution and hardship and suffering, were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus to return to a more comfortable faith, a more familiar and culturally accepted practice of religion. And so far, the author of Hebrews has preached that Jesus is superior to everything the Israelites had experienced in the founding of their faith. Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. Jesus is superior to all the prophets of Israel's past. And now in chapter 5, which we come to today, the author teaches, he preaches, how Jesus is superior to Aaron and the priesthood of the Old Testament. And he does this in order to continue making the case through hard words and warnings, as well as offering hopeful words of true encouragement, that these suffering Hebrew Christians must not let go of their faith in Jesus. They must not return to their former practice of religion apart from Jesus, but they must hold on. They must persevere in faith, and they must move on to maturity in that faith. And so as I prepare to read from Hebrews chapter 5, brace yourself. This is unfamiliar territory for most of us. Uh, This week, last week, and the next few weeks are all about priests and the priesthood, Old Testament Jewish living, which probably most of us are very unfamiliar with and uh, just just not going to have an ear for immediately what is happening here. Language of sacrifice, of grains and animals, of knives and blood and fire, and smoke. All of that sounds like a good barbecue. But it was the constant need for ceremony and for sacrifice, all highlighting humanity's sin and our constant need because of it. How could this constant cycle of blood and death of fire and knife and smoke, how could it ever come to an end? Once and for all, could it come to an end? Well, the author begins a thorough answer to that question, and he does it in chapter 5 through about chapter 7 or 8 of Hebrews. We'll just consider chapter 5 this morning. So give your attention to God's Word, verses 1 through 14. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant 
and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray together that God would bless His Word and do what He says He does. Lord, that is our prayer, that You would now grow us into a better understanding of righteousness and maturity through what You have given us in this book of Hebrews. So, Lord, would You be our teacher? Would You bring comfort where we need to be comforted? Would You bring conviction where we need to be convicted? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you have ever been in a predicament, and I know that you have. But have you ever been in a predicament where you just were in over your head? You didn't have the knowledge to solve the problem, or you didn't have the resources to solve the problem, or you didn't have the ability to solve the problem. I mean a desperate need where something had to be done and, and you were paralyzed out of your own inability or your own lack of resources. You're just not knowing what to do next. I mean, I could give so many illustrations of this in my life, whether it involved a plumber, a contractor, a mechanic, a doctor, a dentist, an attorney. You fill in the blank, but in this life... Surely you've had the experience, like me standing in a rotten bathroom that had a water problem, and the more I took apart the tile, the more I saw the pervasive rot and decay of the, 
rejoiced in the foundation of our home. And I don't even, I can drive a nail in a two-by-four. That's about all I have known to do. And you, you sit there and you look at it and you're like, I don't even know how to take this apart, let alone reconstruct it and put it back together. Have you had that experience? Or maybe it's your car. Something goes wrong with your car. And, and maybe in your history, this is when you would call dad, right? Dad will know. Well, it's no fun being that dad who doesn't know when the phone rings, right? So the dilemma continues. Surely you've had some experience. Maybe it's your own body and it's your own health. You know, why, why, is, why is my shoulder hurting? I can't pick up my arm. I don't know what to do about this. You've had your own experience. And this morning, I want you to zero in on that inability and that weakness. When you, all you can do is think, who can I call? I've got one or two people in my life who know a lot, and they're probably tired of me calling them when I don't know the answer to something. But for me, they are critical. They are an advocate. They are the help when I need knowledge or I need tools, when I need know-how, somebody who is an authority on the subject. That's what I'm speaking to this morning. If you've ever had that experience of having to plead for help from someone because you didn't have what it took to answer the question or to do the task. I trust you've had that experience. That is the context, in a very real sense, that the author of Hebrews is appealing to as he speaks to these Christians who are thinking about abandoning Jesus. And he wants them to see there is one true high priest... There's one advocate. He is willing. He is able. If you turn from him, you have no advocate. No one else is capable. They may be willing, but they're not capable. And so it's that desperation he wants them to not forget. Don't forget your spiritual desperation. You need an advocate. You need him to be an expert and what you really need is for him to care. You need him to care and want to help, to be willing to help. Now, I could give you just as many illustrations about time where maybe I've asked for help. And the answer is, well, that's your problem. A crisis in your life doesn't lead to urgency in my life. Have you ever heard responses like that? And it crushes you, right? And so you know what it is to appeal for, I just need this I need this professor to care that I'm not getting the subject. I need them to show mercy on this paper or this test or whatever. I need someone to understand. I need compassion. That, too, is what the author of Hebrews is striking at. You have a desperate need, and it is answered with compassion and tenderness and mercy. And how could you ever walk away from that? That's his conclusion. Okay, so four things this morning I want to highlight um, as quickly as I can. Four attributes of our great high priest, who is Jesus. And these are all from the passage. The four attributes, I'll give them to you first, and then we'll go one by one. His priesthood is legitimate. It is sympathetic. It is empathetic. And it's perfect. 
Those are the four attributes of Jesus as our great high priest and why we cannot walk away from him and risk the consequences. So first, Jesus' priesthood is legitimate. Listen again to what he says in Hebrews 5, verses 1 and verse 5. He's giving us the groundworks for what a legitimate priest was. He says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. Then verse 5, in the same way, Christ did not take it on himself, the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, and today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why does the author begin here? Well, it's really a logical beginning. The Hebrew mindset would be, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus a priest? Was he a Levite? Because the Levites are supposed to be priests. How does this measure up? He shows that Jesus has authority as a priest. He is legitimate as a priest. He is a bona fide priest. We wouldn't go get help from a plumber, a contractor, a, a dentist, a doctor, a mechanic if they weren't bona fide. We shouldn't. Because you're going to, in the end, probably not get what you are hoping for. We want certified mechanics, certified doctors, board approved. Jesus is bona fide. He is legitimate. He is a legitimate priest. He did not appoint himself. He was appointed by God. And we know this in our, in our own culture. You can't self-deputize yourself, right? You can't make yourself a doctor. You can't... I know you can do online certification that's fake, so I'm not talking about that. You can't be legitimate as appointed by you. You have to be appointed by another. And so it is with the high priest. And Jesus is legitimate. He has been appointed by God. Second point. Oh, and this is good news. His priesthood is sympathetic. That is to say, it's compassionate. It has tenderness, gentleness of feeling. It is not harsh. Listen again to verse 2. The high priest, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. He's gentle. He's kind. He's merciful. This is good news. If you've ever had to appeal for, uh, plea for help and been crushed by the professor, the coach, the employer, the whoever, you know what it is to not be treated gently when you need to be treated Gently. He says Jesus is a high priest. There's a lot of failure of the Old Testament priesthood. Lots of examples of failure. Jesus does not fail the test. He is gentle. He is gentle as a priest. Listen again to chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, I, actually, don't listen again. This is from previous weeks. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is making the case that Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus cares. He has compassion. He has tenderness. That's good news for all of us. Those of us who are harsh and critical tend to think of Jesus as being more harsh and critical than he is. 
but he's tender. A bruised reed he would not break, we were told in the Old Testament. That response of some to your time of need, when you open up and you plea for help, that I'm in over my head, and that response that says, that's your problem. I'm too busy. I've got my own problems to deal with. You understand Jesus will never say that when you come to him as your high priest. You will never get that response from him. He is willing. He is able because he's sympathetic. Amen? Thirdly, Jesus' priesthood is empathetic. It's sympathetic and it's empathetic. And that there is a difference. Sympathy is showing compassion. It's showing that gentleness of heart and actually caring about the story that's unfolding. Empathy is knowing from a shared, lived experience that you have been there yourself, you have lived through it, and you can really feel what that person is going through. This, too, is good news. C.S. Lewis has a quote about friendship I've used before, but he says this, Friendship with another person is born at that moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. Remember that quote? We, we have a kindred spirit when we find out that I thought I was the only one that ever felt this way or experienced this, but you too know what I'm talking about? He says friendship is born at that moment. That's empathy, right? That's the kind of empathy that God has, that Jesus has as a high priest. It's a shared experience. It's a lived experience in this sinful world where Jesus took on flesh, came down from heaven, and has lived, as we are, life in a sin-broken world that treats you poorly. He's lived through it, but in a way that you and I never have. Listen again, or listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 17. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect, proved perfect through Suffering, like our suffering, Jesus is empathetic with the reality of suffering in a sin-broken world. Verse 17, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become like His brothers, His sisters, you could add to empathize as our great high priest. And he did it. He is legitimate. He is sympathetic. He has compassion and tenderness. And he's empathetic. He has been here. He knows what you and I are dealing with, what we are living through. He knows it firsthand. He is compassionate, sympathetic. He is empathetic. He really understands so this week I learned of a show that has existed for years. I have never heard of it. But in God's providence, while studying this material this week, I came upon it. Um, there are a lot of shows out there that you can watch um, about people losing weight, 
and people doing it in community, trying to get healthy and, and fit. So I never heard of this, but it's a show called Fit to Fat to Fit. Have you heard of that? We're, com- we're, we're familiar with the fat fit kind of concept, you know, the biggest loser, shows like that. Well, this is totally different. This was a story of trainers who are fit. And they, the, I watched one episode of it. The guy decided over four months, over the course of four months, he would gain 50 pounds by eating like his clients that he trains. So he intentionally gained 50 pounds eating fast food, ice cream, all this stuff. So the show, some of you are alarmed right now where I'm going with this. Um, the show, the purpose of the show was to show this trainer for four months, eat poorly to gain the 50 pounds. So he's fit to fat. Now, the next rest, second half of the show is this. He then approaches the person that he's training who is overweight. And he says, okay, for the first time in my life, I now know how you feel. I now understand your appetite and how it's gotten the best of you. And now we're going to do this together. We're both going to lose the weight we want to lose. And so now, the episode I watched, together they went from fat to fit. Now, I don't know if it stayed that way, but for the hour-long show, it, it did. And then they asked, they interviewed the one being trained, and he had tears in his eyes. He's like, I didn't know you were doing this. You did this for me? You stooped down to my level to understand what it's like to feel like I feel? And now you're willing to work through this with me? You see the gospel parallels of Christ coming down and taking on flesh and having empathy. And, and, and that's the point of the fat to fit, or the fit to fat to fit to fat to fit, was... Um, empathy. I now can be a better trainer because I've been with you and I will go through this with you. I will walk through this with you. Do you understand that's the kind of beauty that Jesus, having Jesus as your high priest, that it offers you. He knows what it's like to live in this sin broken world. Now, some of you in your minds are objecting. Wait a minute. Jesus, I mean, does he really know what it's like to suffer in this life? Does he really know what it is to be tempted since he was the God-man? Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully man. It's this hypostatic union. Can I explain it? I, I can't. I believe it. But I do know this. Episodes that we're given in Scripture, like in Matthew chapter 16, verses 22 and 23 where Peter took Jesus aside after Jesus had been talking about his approaching death. Peter, one of Jesus' own disciples, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus for talking about death, saying, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus, you remember, turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Do you understand that what's happening there is Jesus knows that he's come to die for his people. He knows this is all going to the cross. 
And one of his own disciples brings the temptation of saying, you don't have to die. Maybe you don't have to die. And he rebukes him as the devil, as Satan, saying, get behind me. I have to die. And you, one of my very own disciples, one of my closest, one who I show tenderness to, you now are tempting me. Suggesting I not do what my Father has called me to do. Now, was this really hard for Jesus to do? I mean, was it really that hard? Well, consider Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating those drops of blood, preparing for his death? Do you remember what his prayer was? Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. And that request to have the cup pass from him, the cup of God's wrath and judgment, which he would drink fully for us, the answer to that prayer was no. It's not possible for you to not die. You must die. And so if, if you can see from the humanity of Jesus, Jesus knows what it is with Peter to be let down by a friend who he needed to be strong for him, and he's given him the advice of the evil one in his ear. And Jesus is showing that it required his prayer, his dependence on the Lord, because if he could get out of this tragedy and horror of death and judgment, he'd get out of it. But the answer was no. And you and I probably don't think about Jesus and his suffering in this life as having much to do with us, where we feel like our prayers are answered in the no, and we're crushed by it. We're scared of the outcomes. Well, so was Jesus. He was fully God, but, but he was fully man. And in that way, he empathizes with us. And there is comfort for you to have this week and in this life in realizing that very thing. He is a legitimate high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's an empathetic high priest. And now fourthly and lastly, um, but really most importantly, Jesus' priesthood is perfect and eternal. Listen again verses 9 and 10. Once made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, here's where that Jewishness, um, the history, the priesthood tends to go right by us. This Melchizedek name has come up twice in our passage. He's referencing it. He's not explaining it, but he does start to explain it in chapter 7. So I'm not going into detail this morning because he does in chapter 7 and I'll go into more detail there. But the sum of it is this. Melchizedek, that's a, that's a quotation from Psalm 110. You need to know that. If you go read Psalm 110, you'll see that, that the Psalter refers to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this unique character who was both king and priest. Two offices came together in one person, which was unique. And his priesthood was said to be eternal, perpetual, unending. And the author of Hebrews is saying, and he'll, the rest of Scripture will inform us, that Jesus really is all three offices coming into one person, prophet, priest, and king. 
which makes him the true unique man. But for now, what he's doing is he is highlighting that that constant flow of blood, that constant need to go find a priest to offer sacrifice for your sin, relentless bloodshed, an unending cycle, but it all comes to an end in a priest whose sacrifice is perpetual, never ending in its efficacious nature to a holy God, and it's being effective in satisfying the holy justice of a living God. This, this guy, this new Melchizedek, is both priest and king. He has kingly power to rule. He can do something, unlike the failed priests of the Old Testament. Richard Phillips says in his commentary uh, regarding Psalm 110, listen to this, the complete citation of Psalm 110 verse 4 makes the reference to Melchizedek clearer. David wrote, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's appointment of Christ as high priest, as high priest is an oath that can never be changed or rescinded. That's a lot of words, I know, but the beauty of it is this. He is powerful. He is powerful as king and priest, and God has sworn it will be this way. So, Hebrews, recipients of the letter, you really want to go back to a priesthood that fails you with perpetual sacrifices? You're going to turn away from the one who God has sworn is our priest forever? in the order of Melchizedek, that is the weight, that is the beauty of what he's saying. It is a beautiful, compassionate, sympathetic, empathetic, legitimate priesthood sworn with God's own oath. And then lastly, it's eternal and perfect. It's eternal and perfect. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Do you feel the weight of this sermon letter and its appeal upon these people who are thinking about letting go of Jesus as their high priest and returning to their former way of life where there would be less persecution, less suffering, because everybody else would be more comfortable with them getting away from Jesus. That's what's at stake here. And the author is saying to them, don't turn and leave. Don't let loose of Jesus in the gospel. Don't slip away, he has said. 
Don't apostatize, but hold on tightly to Jesus. Persevere in your faith through suffering, through your fears, through your trials. And he'll come later and say, oh, the horror, the horror of having no advocate on the day of judgment. Do you really want to let go of your advocate who has authority? Do you really want to let go of the one who can deliver you? Oh, the horror for those who have no advocate on the day of judgment. Well, that won't be true of us if our faith is in Jesus. We have a priest and king forever who is sympathetic, he is empathetic, he is legitimate, he has authority, he is eternal, and he is perfect. And those attributes make him an effective high priest. His atoning sacrifice will cover our sins on the day of judgment because he is both king and priest forever. Amen? That's what's at stake. That's what the author of Hebrews is pressing upon those hearers and upon us today. Let's pray that we would believe it. Lord, would you work in us a deeper and abiding faith in this great high priest whom we've been given? If we have treated him as distant and cold and uncaring of our concerns, may we see that is not the case according to your word. May we see him for his compassion. May we see him for his power and his reign, that he rules as king over everything. So comfort us, Lord, and help us to believe these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.